1: And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
0: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code
2: ACAST. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Hello and welcome to episode number 88 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. I hope you're all well and not being affected too much by the current lockdown restrictions. Today's podcast was actually recorded during a studio visit, face-to-face and not over Zoom like most of them have become. Today's guest is a world-renowned sculptor who creates work on an industrial scale, was awarded an RA and is an absolute all-round lovely guy. It is, of course, Richard Wilson. I've known Richard for quite a few years and was lucky enough to work with him on one of his projects which was called Butterfly, which we speak about in detail and construction. Wilson has exhibited widely nationally and internationally for over 30 years and has made major museum exhibitions and public works in countries as diverse as Japan, USA, Brazil, Mexico, Russia, Australia and numerous countries throughout Europe. Wilson has also represented Britain in the Sydney, Sao Paulo and Venice Biennale. He was nominated for the Turner Prize on two occasions. He was one of a select number of artists invited to create a major public work for the Millennium Dome in 2000. Wilson was, in 2004, appointed visiting research professor at the University of East London. In 2006, he was elected as a member of the Royal Academy and in 2008 was awarded an honorary doctorate at the University of Middlesex. And I'm sure he'll be the first to admit, appearing on the Ministry of Arts podcast, tops all of them. At the end of this podcast, I will be telling you once again about the limited edition barbed wire stars that I've got for sale, and also giving you the heads up on a new art podcast that will be coming out on the 20th of October. So please, come with me, into the studio of Mr Richard
3: Wilson. Well, it's a very interesting time, as we've been just discussing, Covid. You know, a lot of my colleagues are finding it very difficult to find work. But my phone is still ringing, and I'm still getting emails. And not everything is, you know, going to be a party. But basically, I've got a one-person show, a solo show, opening in February 2021 in Istanbul. Nice. in a big commercial gallery out there, Parvaneeli Gallery. So I'm working on collating the drawings, the prints and the sculptures for that. But they are all object based. So it's an interesting one for me. I mean, I'm always my reputation's based on the big work, but this is going to be an interesting commercial space, commercial gallery, and something I haven't I don't haven't done a lot of, so I'm intrigued by that. So that's keeping me busy. On top of that, I've got lots of little bits and pieces. There's an organisation called Plinth. They're wanting a couple of sketches for a portfolio to produce as a multiple. And that's happening uh, late this year. Uh, And then I've got my own project. I I made years ago a piece of work in 2000 called The Slice of Reality, which is a section of shit out at Greenwich. Well, it's been out there now for sort of 20 years, basically and it's time to start thinking about what to do with it it's costing me oh. to keep it there it's getting it's still a little it's it's still mine yeah I've got given it once once the gig was over you know there was three years where it belonged to the the organization and then they as it were sold it to me for a peppercorn thinking yeah, I'd get rid of yeah. it but I've kept it going I ran it as an office for many years then I had it as a bit of a studio space but that didn't work it gets cold and damp in the winter And then my son was on board for a while. He's a musician, so he was using it for uh, band practice and stuff like that. But now it's surplus to requirements, so I've been thinking about it. And I've got a very dear friend who lives down in Cornwall who is getting on now. And he's the owner of the largest collection of steam whistles in the world. (laughs) He's got like 14 million quid's worth of steam whistles. And they are all these lost voices, meaningful utterances that are all silent. And I said... I'm going to make a steam whistle museum for you. I'm going to donate my ship. If you want to donate your stuff, we'll start talking to some people and get some money. So I'm actually working on a suite of drawings to be able to go and start meeting people and saying, look, this is going to be a big new museum. Not necessarily in London, for whoever's interested.
2: Are you going to move it from where it is? We can...
3: We can Cut it, because it's 70 foot high, it's 33 feet wide, and it's 29 feet deep. It's a section. It's a bit like a loaf of bread being the ship, and you take a slice out of it. That's what the slice of reality is. But it's big enough for all his whistles, but we're going to make it a live museum. I know someone in Rotterdam who builds steam boilers who's interested in donating a boiler. And if if we can get it all kitted out and find the money to do it, it'll be open to the public. But we want it as a live museum in that... You know, I want a blow-off twice a year, maybe once at winter and once in the middle of summer. That's kind of getting very difficult with all the PC going on, political correctness. Church bells are dying out. You know, people are moaning about the sound of church bells, which is ridiculous. But if we can get a blow-off happening... You know, imagine kids pulling these strings or these chains and seeing 40-foot plumes of steam going and your chest all rattling away with the the note. Um, So I'm working with... um, a couple of artists who are pro- who are production company on that one called Satorski and Satorsky. And Thomas and Angel are very good at talking to people and finding money. So it's a case of finding where we can put it. You know, it could go to Liverpool Dock, it could go to Newcastle, it could go to Glasgow, yeah. it could stay in London. We're just going to find where the interest is and donate it, you know, yeah. but we'll need the money to do it.
2: So I presume the upkeep is...
3: is well, huge, the upkeep won't be that difficult. I mean... The ship itself structurally is re- in really good shape, but it's all the it's all the detail work that's needing a little yeah. bit of care. What we can do is take that out and replace it, or remove some of it, like pipe work. It's not yeah. necessary to have yeah. all the pipe work, and we can expand it in some way. In that, obviously, there's going to be a difficulty getting the public on board because it's all ladders and yeah. stuff like yeah. that. So we might. Some of the designs I'm looking at is extending the ship slightly in glass as a framework. So it copies what the original ship was like. But that would mean you could put a lift in there. You could have a bit of disability stuff going on, maybe some toilets. And even, um, you know, I'm not sure if you want eating and drinking, but you want could get a coffee there. So it's basically to see if that project has got any... Mileage and the way to do that is I've got to make some drawings and models and have those done by early middle next year. You know, yeah. I'm aiming for Easter and then make the big push after Easter to see if we can get that to happen.
2: Because I, I could imagine <clears the> cities <throat> like you're saying, Liverpool down the docks and that, I, I, I think it'd be quite easy for the councils to agree to that, yeah. Because yeah. it's such a yeah, an icon. I mean,
3: what it would what be is a site, what we'd have to do is we'd have to get a, a, an area not that big actually, but we'd have to have some services in, we'd have to have water electricity etc and then we'd have to have a bit of a delivery site where we could get fuel in for, for the, depending on how the boiler would work you know we can, we're, we're talking oil fired at the moment yeah. which means we'd have to have an oil tank underground you know so there's a little bit of tickety-booing to happen yeah. to put the infrastructure in just to then sit her down what we do is we'd have a cradle made for her for the ship and it means it could be cut in four sections delivered to whatever city welded up or bolted up and then dropped in and then it becomes a, 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 a museum for that city to sort of nice. be proud of. And to, and you don't even have to go there. You can hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Miles off yeah.
2: <laughs> You can hear it coming. Um, well, I should say, as, as we're speaking at the moment, if anyone hasn't realised, we're with Richard Wilson. We first met round about 2002 um, when you was working... Or you was brought into the university you was using the University of East London space. That's right. I was research
3: to... I I was given a two year research fellowship and um, I was introduced to the sculpture department and met yourself and Lee and a few other people. And I came I came for that two years and in that two years I thought I'd do my own work, but at the same time it would only be fair for me to interact by having a project where I could engage with a group of students, yeah. you know not everyone obviously, but there'd be a group of people who might be interested in helping me out on a project. and that project took place in 2003, which is my last year with mm. the UEL fellowship. And um, we went to whopping Project space. It was then run by Jules Wright. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away. With cancer a couple of years ago, not I a didn't know ago, of that
2: space at that time. What a yeah. amazing space is, yeah, it
3: is! Yeah, yeah, it was an absolutely beautiful space. C- currently, it's empty. It is owned, but currently it's empty and awaiting redevelopment. And I think the guy who's now got ownership of that space is talking about probably reintroducing something of Jules's ideas. You know, a restaurant yeah. and a space for you know art events to take place. So hopefully that will come back in. But yeah, we we got that. Um, Project together, and I can well, talk about that. With,
2: with butterfly, you brought in a a Cessna aeroplane, and I know I know a lot of people helped, but I know that it was me and Lee and a guy called Mark who was in. A Mark gig was with there us. as well, yeah. Um, yeah, it was a, the three of us were were sort of there more than the main most, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it involved a sort of stripping the paint off the the plane and buffering yeah, it up, and yeah, and then one Saturday afternoon in the car park, yeah, brought in a load of. um
3: Yeah, I mean, what happens, yeah, uh, I'll give you a little bit of potted history about the idea. I mean, what happens to artists is when they get going, it's all very exciting. They come out of college and they're finding themselves, they're trying to find ideas. Um, But as you become more professional, you start to sort of get into fixes and fixes being you know, you know, when your party pieces are working, you know, you could just sit back and probably just do that and make some money or whatever. So you're not really pushing and testing yourself as an artist, which is, you know, really where you should be. It does mean you take take taking risks. But I believe that's what art is about. It's about taking risks. So I was beginning to think I know, I knew what I was doing as an artist. And I was probably sitting back a bit, not necessarily being lazy. But I was just sort of ticking along and it was all fun, but I wanted something that would really test me. So I was trying to get back to, like, first principles of making. You know, what? what is the creative act? What is a creative act? How can I do something that I've never done before that I'm not trained at doing, yeah. where I could surprise myself and excite myself? Anyway, complete accident, sheer fluke. One day I put my hand in my pocket, having washed my jeans, and I pulled out a fiver that had all screwed yeah, up. Yeah. It had been through the washing machine. And I thought, Jesus Christ, that's a five. You know, that's a lot of money for me. <laughs> and so what you do is you start unfurling it. Yeah. And, of course, it starts tearing, so you turn it round, you start somewhere else. And, I start, and as I was doing this, I was thinking, this is like an idea. This There's an idea in it. This is the first principles of a creative act, how to unfurl something that's screwed up. Yeah. We're not trained. No-one's ever been trained to do that. Yeah. Maybe the, Maybe a panel beater straightening out a car mm. that's been in a crash is as close as you'll get it, or... You know, when you've sort of like probably poured all your oil paint out of a tube and rolled it right up, you open it out again and cut the end off yeah, and look inside, yeah. and see if there's a tiny little bit of white or red <laughs> left inside. So those kind of acts that aren't really art, but as a process can be if you can a- apply them in some way. So this started a series of drawings and models, which is always how an idea gets going. And... um I decided on, upon buying a Cessna aircraft, just the body, you know, the wings and the body, No, none of the guts inside, yeah. none of the mechanics, as it were. And I found a guy down in Surrey somewhere who had a couple of fields, and it was full of old... He'd bought... Um, insurance stuff, you know, that was written off so he could buy an aeroplane, take the wings off and sell the wings, that sort of thing, or a propeller or whatever. So I went and got a load of bits and pieces which made up a cessna light aircraft and then brought all those bits, as you well now know, Gary, brought those to UEL, where I was based, and we bolted it all together and checked it all out that it was going to, you know, be an aeroplane that we could crush. Then we stripped it and then... Actually, then took all the paintwork off because what I wanted to do is I wanted a glistening, like an insect. I wanted something that was recognizable as an aeroplane, obviously, initially, but I didn't want it with all the paintwork and the signage and stuff. I just wanted the metal, the polished metal. So we went through that laborious task of weeks of bloody. It started with nitromoles and we all got a bit worried what, about what went down the drain. So we we <laughs> got some we nice. got yeah we got some sort of friendly stuff in, and stripped all the paint off. Then we buffed it up, bolted it all together, and I remember wheeling it out into the car park, and we had a look yeah. at it, and it was a beautiful thing, yeah. you know, the yeah. paint off it. It was a bit like the first Mercedes racing car where it they turns, sanded all it the turns, paint off. doesn't
2: it, from a plane to a sculpture? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. It started to lose its identity and just be a form. Yeah, at the definitely. end, and then then the next problem was like okay it's going to if we're unfurling something we then need to crush it first to be able to unfurl it so how do you crush an aeroplane and I thought what we'll do is we'll get four forklift trucks in and I'll build some big sort of uh, ramming devices on the front of them and get these people to just sort of fold it up for me but of course an aeroplane I hadn't thought about it. I mean, these things are designed. Yeah, these things are designed to actually protect the occupant when you're up in the air. You know, you don't want to die coming down in one of these things. So they're they're rather like origami. When you look at the metalwork inside, they're folded in such a way as to to keep the integrity of the structure there when it hits something if it lands, you know, badly. So I remember we had to go in and. Saw a couple of bits and Sledge whack it. Yeah, I remember you with a sledgehammer. Because <laughs> these faultlift truck guys, they got very excited. They yeah. were ramming it, but their trucks were getting beaten up, yeah. and the aeroplane wasn't really getting mashed.
2: Yeah.
3: Anyway, so,
2: they've got to be two tonne each, you haven't they? yeah, before. yeah,
3: yeah. They got to be yeah, and they were running at them, weren't they? They yeah. were really smashing at it, but it wasn't. It wasn't. And I was getting a bit panicked. That's why we had to sort of sort of un, undo a few bits. But then. We finally, at the end of the day, it was a long, exhausting day, but we got it into a big lump. But then the problem was like, how do we get it to Wapping? And I remember driving home and I came up at the traffic lights and there was a scaffold lorry full of lads. And I said to him, hey, do you want to earn a couple of quid? <laughs> I've got a lump of metal. And I need to get it from, you know, the from, from the Galleon's Reach way, uh, from the university, to Wapping Project Space in Wapping. And I said, yeah, 40 quid, you know, we'll do it. And they, anyway, they... I met them at the car park. I don't know if you remember being there, but there was this yeah. pile of metal, and they jumped out, and they started dragging it along the floor, and I said something which completely floored them. I said, please, don't drag it like that. You'll scratch it. <laughs> and they're looking at me as if I'm completely <laughs> That's mad. That's where the two worlds Yeah, and it's and like my hand on that plane is my hand. Yeah. I made it that, yeah. that screwed-up form because I had an image of it. Is, is but ours, their scratch yeah. that scratch they're putting on it isn't part of my plan. Yeah. I don't want this thing screwed up. So they looked at me as if I was completely mad. <laughs> it's a bit of metal, <laughs> Anyway, they, Anyway, they put a wad in their pocket and they dropped it off at whopping. And then the lump was hung in the space. And over a period of three and a bit weeks, we worked together, didn't we, mm. as a core team with hydraulic equipment and Ratchets. ratchet strap, two-tonne ratchet straps. And we started to pull that plane out. with no, from, With me having no real clear idea exactly... What the end result was going to be, but what we did, or what I did do, is I employed a couple of guys to come and install time lapse photography uh, that fired down on really primitive computer stuff. You know, yeah, every five minutes a camera went off from a movie camera and also. Uh, from a still camera and the movie camera, you like yourself, you have two in case one breaks down, but also the movie camera meant that I could get the sound, yeah, I could get a moment of sound as well as a moment in visual.
2: And everyone beneath it was wearing red hard. Hands yeah, and yeah, and it was all didn't bird's eye, eye view. Red one, did you,
3: yeah, uh, yeah, I had a red one, yeah, oh, we all had red, different camera. and of course, what happened is every five minutes there was like, like a click, click, a click, click, day and night, and after about three and a half weeks, we'd got the aeroplane out. And by then I was just beginning to think, what is all this about? And What sculpture is very good about is it's very good about talking about mass, but it's not very good about talking about time, whereas cinematography and still photography can talk a little bit about time much better. And I realized all every day going at the end of the day with a big stick, you know, with all the images up to a bigger computer upstairs yeah. to part them up there, because this computer downstairs that was holding them for a day wasn't big enough to up, get yeah. yeah, it was too low, too full up. So I realized what we had is a compression of time. Here I was with a compressed object pulling it out. And I'd actually then got all this compressed all these moments. If I could compress them into a film. I'd have the history of that aeroplane unfurling over three weeks in three and a half minutes, as it turned out. And the piece was cut from all its strops, and it crashed to the ground like a swatted gnat. And overnight, we built that screen. And the next day, people came in, because they'd been witnessing the, the unfurling. The next day they came in, the plane was, like, behind a screen, and you're in darkness. And there was just this movie called Butterfly, and it was like this... All these weird sounds, you know, know, voices and machinery and tools all playing out in three and a half minutes with this thing just opening and then back to beginning and opening and back to beginning. With the worker ants buzzing around. Yeah, with everybody. And we were like worker ants or something, you know, it was a very insect type piece of work in in the relationship to how, you know, bees work or insects work. We were all working around this mothership, this aircraft, to pull it back out.
2: Because what was interesting for me although I was a part of it from you know, the, the start to the end, I'd never seen a... Obviously, i have never seen a, a, a major piece of work like that come to fruition. And it was beautiful to see that you had the initial idea, the end... You, you knew what you wanted at the end. You, you sort of knew how to get there, but every part of it was a journey for you as well. Yeah, yeah. never sure. And yeah. when we come up against... Prob- or when you come up against problems... The thing that I've really admired, and I've taken on myself after that, was that we had Richard Wilson, who we was all looking up to, turn around to us and go, what do you reckon? How can we get around this problem? Yeah, yeah. You know, it was, you was really making it our work,
3: you know? Well, it's the Beatles, isn't it? Try with a little help from my friends, you know, you you know you have a problem but it's a shared it's a shared situation and i've always used the plural we yeah you know i do a i do a lot in my work only because the scale of it means it's not me i might have the initial idea but it's we that put it together we being the plural engineers fabricators whoever i employ or whoever working with me as team Mm. we can we can get this thing done and uh yeah i mean there were there were as i said we're not trained in unfurling smashed up airplanes or anything that's been crushed how do we how do you pull it back out the fiver was the learning curve but at the same time you then have to go to jump to a different scale and a different material it's still the same act you know unfurling and pulling out but when it's metal and you've got equipment and hydraulics you need a couple of people to be holding things while you're getting something in and then they're on it doing their bit and it's it's a very very shared situation and in that respect all the aesthetic decisions were shared as well. Yeah. It wasn't like my ego was dictating, because mm. sometimes I was actually thinking, "Well, you know, where is this going? What are we doing with this thing? You know, what should we? Just, let's get it up there and start turning it around a bit." And yeah. someone will say, "Right, okay, let's put it on this one. We'll, I'll put my strop up here." So we were sharing a situation. Yeah. It's like going up a mountain with a load of people. You know, you don't have. You'll have one who who might come forward as being more knowledgeable. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all packing in there and trying to, to yeah. sort of get something done collectively. Yeah. Um, and we even did that with the food, the lunch breaks. We were all chipping in. We were yeah, all making, It wasn't yeah. like I was sitting back waiting, who's made my sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <so laughs> Every, you, <laughs> everyone was doing it for everyone else, yeah. weren't we? It was great. I remember that lad who, who, who taught me how to make a proper... Decent coffee out of instant <laughs> powder, you know, and it was all about how much how much powder you put in, and then a tiniest bit of coffee, a uh, tiniest bit of milk, and you have to really whisk it to foam it all up, and the temperature the the water had to be yeah, just making, right. And I was thinking, I coffee. was thinking, I'm really getting to something <laughs> from this project. I know how to make coffee.
2: <laughs> <laughs> when you was growing up, was your art in your family?
3: Yeah, my dad um, was an artist, and my mum had been to art school, and I think. Although he never encouraged it, I grew up in an environment where he made constructions. And uh, I always thought, oh, God, that smells great. You know, I could watch the alchemy of him putting a stick with bristles on it into colour and picking it up and putting it on a bit of shaped plywood that had a bit of canvas glued on it, and he'd scumble the painting. And when he'd go out the room, I'd pick it up and have a dab as well, and I'd hear him come back and put the brush down. (laughs) And I, could, I, was, I wonder if he'd see my bit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I grew up in that environment. There were always books around. I remember being a young kid and being really scared of looking at the Goya prints in the book. And you know? when my parents used to go, I used to get the Goya book. Remember, that guy's <laughs> put that fork through all those people and eating them, and all the horror of that Goya imagery. Um, but he never encouraged it. He just used to say if you're going to do anything, do it to the best of your ability." And I've always remembered that. If you're going to do something, you might as well do it well. Uh and I was thought i'd do a be, become a graphic designer. I went to the London College of Printing in nineteen seventy at Elephant and Castle and I did a foundation course there and it was all lecture set then there was no computers or anything yeah. you know you'd you'd have to draw and do lecture setting and type setting stuff out and I thought this is all okay, but it's too it for me it was too two dimensional it was too yeah. flat. Yeah. And I realised what I really wanted to do is I wanted to be dealing with stuff in my hands. I wanted to make things. I'd always been a maker, you know, I'd always done models and stuff like that. And then when I got to 16, I bought a big motorbike and I pulled it all apart, rebuilt it and I went off down to Cornwall. I gave up with school. I finished in the fifth year. I didn't do sixth form. I didn't do A-levels or anything. I went off and built surfboards.
0: Nice.
3: I was glassing down there. I was repairing. I had a all the sidecar that I had on this big motorbike, an old M20, had all the fiberglass gear, and I and I made myself quite a lot of money actually. And I was drawing all the decals, um, the transfers. I used to go to the local bread shop and get the tissue paper, and I'd sit all day and do decals for people, and then I'd glass them into the boards. Yeah. And so I had all my drawings. You know, people would buy them and put them, and I, you know, have them done. And that sort of set the plan for sort of making. So when I finished. London College of Printing I went to Hornsey College of Art as it was then which is now I think Middlesex University it did go Middlesex Polytechnic then University as these things do and change and develop and then from there 74 to 76 I did a postgraduate course in a rather monastic existence on the London road site of the Reading University but it was it was a great two years I mean it was it was solitary in one sense there weren't many there weren't many of us on the postgraduate course. And it was, you know, the, the sculpture bit. The workshops were at one end of the university and my studio was at the other. So you tended to keep yourself to yourself. There was a bit of social life, obviously, in the e- evenings being university. But that was really good as well. And it was very different to, you know, the kind of craziness of Hornsey College of Art and what, got, what we all got on to there, you know, <laughs> at Alexandra Palace. And then from there, I moved to Butler's Wharf in 1976 and got myself a studio. Came back to London because I was a Londoner. Came back to London, I thought I'm going to make myself a career in art. There wasn't a lot going on. There wasn't a lot of commercial galleries yeah. then. You could probably count them on two two hands, you know, probably 10 think, commercial galleries. I don't
2: think a studio in Butler's Wharf would be too
3: cheap nowadays, would it? Well, <laughs> Butler's Wharf, I mean, Conrad bought it all and it finished in 1980. Well, I finished there in 1982. But when I went in there, I got a 3,000 square foot space on the. Top floor, but one in W block at Butler's Wharf, with a view out over the river, and it cost me hundred and twenty-seven quid a year. Three <laughs> <laughs> thousand square that foot, foot now, and it? that would be a square foot now. <laughs>
2: Shit, <laughs> it's amazing, isn't
3: it? Yeah, absolutely amazing. I mean, I've I've gone full circle. I've come here. I've got a very good landlord. I'm out in Erith. And he's been very, very fair and and honest with me and straightforward. And as you can see, opposite it's derelict. He's trying to make he's put me in here as a bit of bait to see whether he can get all that going. So I'm going to help him out on that one. Um, And I've got friends I know who would be interested in some spaces here. But uh, I'm, on a, I'm on a very, very small rent here, and I've got a couple of thousand square feet. I've got a workshop downstairs. Well, they've got small
2: un, um, units in here, artist units.
3: Well, at the moment, it's all empty and open across there. Because you've
2: got just down the road there at Woolwich, yeah. um, right yeah. Richardson's down there, yeah. and that's that's a, a, a massive big community.
3: Yeah, 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 the, that's a big, Thameside. big space. Yeah, Thameside Studios. Yeah, I know a few people who are in there. What they tend to do is they tend to get these spaces, and then they chop them right up so they make little pods within them i'm talking to jack all about how this could be left a little bit more open in that you know people i know are looking for space They're looking for like a thousand two thousand square feet but they can't afford when i say london prices we're still in london here at irith Mm. but they can't afford those silly crazy prices that i was paying network rail you know i mean they were just Creaming it, and uh, they weren't really giving that much back, as far as I was concerned, as a landlord. And I gave up with them in the end. I was I was priced out by them.
2: Well, when Gavin Turk moved about two years ago or yeah. so, maybe three, he went from where he was in Hackney um, Wick. Yeah, yeah. He, he just crossed over the road, more or less, over into Canyon Town years ago. It was we had a like, of scrap merchants. And yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I remember it. And yeah. he's just smack in the middle of it. Yeah. Made a studio amongst it, and yeah. when, I, when I last saw him, I was like, You know, how are you getting on with the guys around you? Yeah, because I could imagine them, like you were saying, with the scaffolders. Yeah, you know, they just know metal is you know, 30 pounder. Yeah, 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 they know they know, you know how to weigh it in, exactly. but they don't know his sculpture. <laughs> <laughs> but he was saying he gets on fine with everyone around yeah. him. You know, he yeah. himself said, You know, he's the crazy artist. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, season,
3: yeah. You know. yeah. Well, that's a bit like here, but we've got great uh, people either side. You know, we've got Vikram next door. And uh, he well he's going through some very difficult times because of the COVID shutdown. Yeah. You know he's he's got shipments that are held up in ports and stuff like that. You know, and I've seen his company really suffer. You yeah. know, with with the fact that customers aren't buying. You know, he deals with luggage. Well, if you if you cut travelling out in a country. Yeah. who wants to go and buy a suitcase so I've seen people around me suffer and I'm feeling strangely quite privileged in my career in my my profession that I'm still able to sit and dream I've got a bit of savings, I'm able to... I, if I sit here for a week and don't make any money, I haven't lost mm. because I've been dreaming yeah. and I've been creating yeah. and, I've, and I've got backup. I've I've come up with an idea and I've put that on the back burner. So if someone phones me next year, I can say, yeah, I've got a couple of ideas. I've yeah. been working hard whilst we've had shutdown, you know, lockdown. So, yeah, I mean, t- t- you know, I mean, this thing of sort of quarantining and everything, I mean, I've spent my life quarantining. Yeah. I've, you, know, but you, you see here, you know, I mean... I'm up here on my own most of the time, and I'm drawing, and if I'm not, I'm down in the workshop downstairs. But I'm on my own doing it yeah. until I get a big project. Then normally I would bring people in, or I would go out, and the gallery would become the project yeah. space, and they would bring people in, or I'd bring my, let's say, team in. And then the team would get going on something.
2: Well, having your studio in an industrial area like this yeah. is ideal, is because yeah. you're an industrial-scale yeah. Yeah. artist. You know? And I tell
3: you what, the amount of wastage in these in these kind of big trading estates, you know, the number of... You know, when you think, oh, I want a bit of wood, I've got to make a pallet to ship something. Yeah. Well, you see pallets being chucked away, you see good bits of wood, you see sheet material, all going into these big grundons or skips. Yeah. And I go over and I say, listen, I've got to make a crate, I've got to ship something. <laughs> oh, step uh, coming here's, over yeah, again here's here's a bit cu- Here's a couple of quid. <laughs> now, what they're doing here now is they're leaving stuff out for me. Nice. And it's great, because I give them a couple of bob or a bottle yeah, of wine yeah, or something, yeah. and I say, that's great. Yeah, I've got, got two, two pieces of work, I've got to go north or south, and... I'll, make, I'll go down and I'll make my own crates or bring someone yeah. in to help me. And then, But it, it's all done with just a, a view to sort of recycling in nice. a way, which is
2: good. I do. When was it you realised you wanted to be an artist?
3: That's a good question. When did I want to be an artist? I think it was probably at the time I was down in Cornwall when I was, when I was working in the cafe, when I was doing the surfboard repairs, the fiberglassing, and everything else and, and buzzing around on my motorbike. I just began thinking, I think I'd better go to art school. I hadn't finished school properly, you know. Yeah. Everyone else had stayed on to do the A-levels and go on to university. Yeah, and I was thinking, what do I, what am I going to do with my life? I can't hang around down here for too long. You know, it's not good for my health. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, the old early 70s, late late 60s, early 70s. I survive. So uh, I thought, I'll go back to London and I'll, because of all the intrigue of all the lettering and the decal work for the for the fiberglassing of the boards uh i thought i'd do the do the graphic design and it was only at that point of thinking of being a graphic designer whilst i was there i'd made the flip as i explained you know i felt i wasn't using my hands i was getting more intrigued with sculpture i was around with other people who were like-minded were saying oh let's go and make something you know we don't want to do this stuff yeah. with letters set, it's a bit boring. So I'd go to the other studio with them and we'd be we'd be hanging out and we'd be playing with all sorts of material and you know, I watched someone world and I said, I wanna do that. Yeah. I wanna be a welder I wanna make I wanna stick metal together. Yeah. And you could, you know, you think I could put a chair on a lamppost or I could do that. I could do that. Yeah. You know, I mean you could go crazy with a welder if you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the that was the birth of it. That was really it. There must have been something subconsciously there because of my upbringing, obviously. You know, I mean, I got dragged to galleries when I was young and stuff like that, but there weren't that many of them. But I became more and more intrigued. And then, of course, when you become intrigued, you start looking at other artists, you start a library. You know, I was getting books, I was going to private views. And then the big, big thing was I was thinking, I'll go to Hornsey College of Art. I did apply elsewhere, didn't get in, but I, my second choice was Hornsey, and I got in there for sculpture. They were they, they liked what I was doing on foundation. And there were a couple of guys there, in fact, the head of sculpture at the time, Nibs Dowd, Hubert Dowd, well-known sculptor, uh, contacted myself and a colleague of mine in the first year at Hornsey and said, listen, you know, I've been watching what you're doing, you're good with your hands. Do you want to come to the studio at weekends? I'll pay you. And of course, I got into that lifestyle of going over there and building Hubert Dowd yeah. stuff. And then... Going off to the private views and looking at gorgeous girls and yeah. drinking wine. I mean, yeah, it was like yeah. it was amazing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I landed on my feet. <laughs> was used to cider <laughs> in Cornwall. <Google>. Yeah, <laughs> but that, that, that's the same
2: feeling you got there as when you invited us <laughs> to yeah. work with you. Yeah, you know? it was, yeah, it was quite a big deal. Yeah, to, yeah. to be a part of it. You know, <laughs> I mean, you've you've created some some massive pieces, but one of the questions I've got here that I ask every artist is, what's the um, artwork you've created that's got the strongest emotional
3: connection? Well, it's an interesting question because I've got a couple of big party pieces and I think through just the sheer daring, structural daring of them. I mean, my most famous party piece is 2050 oh, and it's it sounds very odd. It's a room filled with used waste oil. Yeah. Now, you've, your listeners will be wondering, well, what's so special about that? Well, the first thing is what you thought you'd never do in your life. Is look at oil. Yeah. You know why would you want to look at oil? There's n- what what is oil? You know well this is used waste oil, and when it's when I say used, it's been through the engines of cars. The graphite's been burnt, and so it's gone black. So it has this reflective power. Now that piece has been all over the world. And for most people, that is the, the, the work of the century as yeah. a sculpture. It's an anomaly, you know, how do you make it? You know, how do you store it? This, that and the other. But for me, that's second best, that piece. My best piece I think I've ever done that's got the, the, the most emotional connection is a piece of work called Turning the Place Over. Brilliant. Now, Turning the Place Over was made for the European capital culture in Liverpool. It still exists, but it's not switched on. It's been turned off, but it stays in a disused, derelict building that was due for demolition. Turning the place over comprises of cutting a circular section of the façade of a building and spinning it as fast as you can before bits fly off. So this is a 10-metre diameter section of the façade of a building in Moorfields, uh, up in Liverpool, in the city centre, which I'd actually conceived of 10 years earlier when a model which I'd made broke and I had to repair it. And so I took the facade, which is actually something that just oscillated backwards and forwards yeah. in a previous piece called Over Easy, which is in Stockton. And it comprises of a perfect circular section that goes three hundred degrees one way and three hundred degrees back in the facade flat. Doesn't sort of work three dimensionally. It's it's a flat turning. Well when that spindle broke on that model, I put it down, I put the facade down on the table and stuck the spindle on it vertically upright overnight when i came in the morning it had fallen over about 50 degrees and i thought oh god i'll have to break that off and redo it and and prop it up so it sticks on perpendicular and and repairs properly anyway when i picked it up and just twisted it in my thumb and my forefinger i was turning i thought bloody hell it's wobbling like a penny when you spin it or a plate when you spin it on the table and it does that three-dimensional wobble and I put it into a piece of card and spun it. I thought that would go right round, come out into the street, go back into the building and park itself up neatly every one revolution. Yeah. And so I worked on many, many models and many drawings over 10 years. I found money to do it, but conditions weren't right. Like, you know, it had to be done in London. I couldn't find a building. Then I found buildings, but the money wasn't there. Yeah. And Nothing connected properly. And then I heard about... The European Capital of Culture up in Liverpool, and the director of the Liverpool Biennale at that time, Lewis Biggs. I met him. There was a social going on at the Tate, and I met him in a bar before the private view on the corner of Tate Britain. And uh, I sat down on a bar stool with him. And I said, "Lewis, I've got this idea. You know, it's been niggling me for ten years." I know it's going to sound silly explained to you, but I sat there, you know, it's almost like a drunken conversation. This building's wobbling, And I could see him listening and like trying to get an idea for it, and I couldn't draw it properly. And he said, give me a week. I'll have a think about it, give me a week. Anyway, the next morning, I had a phone call from him. He didn't take him a week. He said, can you come up and have a look at some buildings? Yes. And I thought, I've sold it to him, I've sold it to him. So I made a couple of models, and I went up there with the models, so we sat down, I said, look, this is it, you know, all my conversation, and he completely got it, you know, he got it anyway. Uh, he completely got it. And he said, look, there's these buildings, there's about five of them. And we went round and we looked at the Moorfields one, all due for demolition, of these buildings. Yeah, yeah. So we were allowed to intervene, we were allowed to tamper with the structure. Um, and... I said, this is the building. It's got the right stonework. We can work with that. Bricks would be too fragile. The building will fall apart, you know. And it's got a lot of steel in there. It was an early 60s building. And it was a Yates' Wine Lodge on the ground floor. It had been. And then five or four or five floors of insurance upstairs. But it was all derelict, smashed up. The Yates' Wine Lodge was flooded. You know, the roof was leaking. So we knew we could take this building, the written off, the forlorn, the forgotten, the eyesore, and we could transfer it and transform it. And we did. And we had everyone from all over the world coming to view that piece of work. And almost every architectural magazine in the world covered it. And I still get people writing to me today saying, when well, are you switching it back on? Yeah. And there's moments where we've nearly got there. There's been a big campaign very recently to have it switched back on because so of, of its something like 10th or 20th anniversary. you shoot
2: for demolition, how comes it's still there?
3: What it is... Is the site is controversial? It's due for demolition. It's in the centre of—I say the centre. It's up towards the docks, up towards Tate Liverpool. Yeah. It sits um, surrounded by a very old derelict car park. But for anyone to buy that building and want to pull it down and put up a tower block in the centre of Liverpool is impossible. The pile work. It's very near to the confluence, the meeting of three tunnels under Liverpool, you know the Mersey, and there's two others, and I don't know what they are. So for anyone to put in a proposal for a 10-20-story like, job, you'd never get it, they've got so because they've work, got so much work to do with how the pile work would go down into Liverpool's bedrock without disturbing the tunnels that it take years and years and years. So it's not really worth anyone doing anything. It is owned by a company at the moment, but they bought it off another company who bought it off another company because the council sold it. So the building is there, all the gubbins and the piece of work is there, but no one wants to turn it back on. Because if you do, you carry the warranty for it. I don't, you know, just like your building, if a a pane of glass fell out and hit someone on the head, you'd be... So, yeah, so no one wants to switch it back on. And yet, if they did, you know, as a tourist attraction... it was so just, I like
2: that story you told us about the cab driver.
3: Oh, yeah, 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 that was a funny one. That was when, in 2008, that was the European Capital of Culture, the Tate decided to do the Turner Prize up at Tate Liverpool yeah. because of it, you know, being the European capital. And I thought, I'm gonna, I had an invite to go up, and I thought, I'll go up to Liverpool only because I can PR my work. I could go around and say, go and have a look at this. You know, it's turning heads. It's called turning the place over. Everyone's talking about it. But, of course, I didn't need to because everyone was looking at it. It had been on news at 10 and everything. So I um, I um went up there and the train was held up. So I was really late to get to this thing. So I ran out the station, jumped into a cab. And I said to the cab driver, take Liverpool as fast as you can. And he went, oh, that bloody place. <laughs> and he said... Bloody art. He was driving and moaning. Bloody art. You know, we've got bloody art everywhere here. It's bloody waste of time, waste of money. You know, the usual arguments. Yeah. You could buy a kidney dialysis machine. You could do this, do that. And um, he said, are you an artist? I said, yeah, I'm a sculptor. He said, I'll sh- if you've got a bit of time, I'm going to take you to see a real bit of sculpture. <coughs> and he drove me to my work. Excellent. And I just, I didn't know what to do. And I was sitting in the car and I said, that's bloody brilliant. I didn't want to tell him it was me because he'd think he'd have a nutter in the back of the car uh, and make me walk to the tape. you know, so get out, you know, and he'd, he'd dash away. So I was sitting in the back of the car and he jumped out of the car and he ran round. He parked up in the middle of the road and said, you can't sit in the car, you've got to stand here. Excellent. And he took me to a bit of the road and he said, watch what happens here. It See, it's not circular. It's an ovoid. How yeah. does he do it? And it is because if you cut into a building at 50 degrees, it's a bit like it's a bit like taking a plastic soil pipe and not cutting it. Straight across, but cutting at an yeah, angle. Yeah. When you look at it, it's an ovoid, but then as you turn the pipe, it's actually circular because yeah, it yeah, is a circular exactly. pipe, you know. So there's a conundrum, a shape conundrum yeah. going on. And he took me to this one point in the street he'd found where he could see it's a perfect ovoid. and He said, I don't know how he's done it, it's an ovoid, but it goes back on itself. It must sort of move it. And I was saying, It's bloody brilliant. And I said, But it's getting a bit late, we've got to go, mate. <laughs>
2: I mean that, that that little story means more to me than <laughs> yeah. if an artist was yeah. telling you how yeah. great yeah. it was. You know, yeah. for someone who had yeah. n- not only no interest in art but you yeah. know had a, had a yeah.
3: negative view on it. Well, I, I the the, the, the liver puddlings up there were terrific. You know, I mean there were people who were anti it first of all. First of all, saying you know what a waste of time. And I had to point out to them, listen, mate, this is central government money paid by Blair. For a capital of culture in Liverpool where that money goes north, northwest, and is given to local people to build that. Yeah. And he could see it then. But one guy was really good. Because there was a lot of people just rocking up to look at the piece, you know, at the private view. We were it was that guest, but it was also anybody in the city, and everyone had heard about it. And this old boy came up to me and he said, See what you've done there, you know, in a Liverpudlian accent. See what you've done there, From mate. From
2: Birmingham, was he? Yeah.
3: <laughs> see, what you've do- see what you've done there, mate. When people staggered out of that Yates' Wine Lodge, the building was doing it then.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're doing it then. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you're just making them see it so And fun. I could
3: see, you know, the old Aussie whites was going down. You come out of that building, the building's spinning all over the place. <laughs> Was it
2: in Liverpool, where you drilled through the gallery down?
3: No, but that is an interesting pro- proposal uh, that never uh, ever got built. And in a funny way, Gary, there are certain pieces of work that I dream up which somehow are probably better not made. And an example oh, see, of that one... Head, I have it,
2: oh, I'm yeah. getting mixed up with Matt's gallery. Uh,
3: water table. Yeah, water table, yeah. But what I just going to say about... Um, the drilling down, I did have an idea, I did have a a, a very interesting idea for Tate Liverpool, which never got made and in a way really only exists as a story or a a set of drawings and writing. And what that was, was I was invited up to Liverpool ages ago outside the Liver building, myself and four other artists from around the world actually, five of us, to look at an old bus depot site where the buses turned around and went back into the city. And they wanted some kind of sculptural bridge or something. And while I was up there, we had a a lunch with the local councillors in the Liver building. And I was thinking, God, it's a bit windswept up here. I can't come up with any ideas. This is a bit boring. So I'm having a sandwich, and this old boy comes up, one of the councillors, and he's saying, you know, Liverpool's full of history, the docks are beautiful, and this, that, and the other. But then he said something that, floored me completely. He said, you know, the docks go up and down an inch, about an inch and a half every tide. I said, what? what you, you know, what are you drinking? <laughs> he said, no, the docks are all built on greenwood piles. And when the tide comes in, they sweat, he, he said. Yeah. They sweat. And I said, what's that? He said, they, it's like a sponge. They take a bit of water and they grow.
2: Expand,
3: yeah. And all that stone rises and falls about an inch every tide. Now, I don't know if that's true. But the way he told it to me Feasible though, isn't it? made me God, sit on great. the train. I'd got the idea already. It just came like that. You know, I mistrust ideas. If I get an idea, I need to take it for a walk around the block yeah. for a couple of months and really test it to make sure I've got it right. But what I thought was, if you drilled from the top floor of Tate Liverpool, right down through all the floors and down into the basement and down into Liverpool bedrock, and you then fixed a bronze rod that was probably about two or three inches in diameter from the top floor down into Liverpool bedrock. You'd walk in there and you'd trip over this thing on the floor that's an inch yeah. sticking up out the floor. You'd trip over it and you'd go, what the bloody hell is that doing there? If you came back six hours later and said to someone, look what I tripped over, it'd be flush with the yeah. floor. Because the whole building, the whole of Liverpool tape has gone up and made that flush. And then when it goes down and stops sweating on the tide, that inch and a half of bronze will be sticking out. Conceptually, it's a massive, massive leap. It's a beautiful idea. To do it... You're running the risk of does it actually move? You know, is it going to move that said, amount did you, each time? Did you
2: ever find out if it was true. Or not?
3: I never found out if it was true, but I did a series of drawings. I sold them all. Did a series of drawings just about that. I Remember you saying about it? And it and it became a talking piece. It's got,
2: piece. A, it's got a mixed up in my mind that yeah. it was an actual artwork. Yeah,
3: yeah, no that that was that was a a piece of work that really did exist as a concept. It, it exists as drawings. But but it's one that never got built, and I don't think it ever will. I think it. I think it's Sometimes sometimes you do need to have pieces that that are so good, yeah. but you don't. You, they don't. They. But they can't get built. And um, people do mention it every now and again when they write about me. But you mentioned water table. Yes, I I made a piece of work. We're now talking about two thousand and was it two thousand and two. I've forgotten when this was actually. 94.
2: I've forgotten 94,
3: 1994, the New Mats Gallery, and I had this idea. I mean, that no one had seen the new space. I had the first show, as it were, in one of the spaces. I think Willie Doherty was before me. He was in. It was two spaces. He'd got that space, but no one had seen the new space. And I thought I'd make a piece of work that sits outside the rented area. You know, it could be outside the window or up above the ceiling or down in the ground. So that when you went in, you just saw the the rented space, as it were, the gallery space. But the sculpture was also occupying it, but outside of it, if you understand yeah. what I'm saying. So I came up with this idea. What we would do is I would buy a, like a shed structure. I was thinking about a cricket pavilion, you know, and we'd dig all the floor up because it was a wreck anyway. So we could do it and put it in there upside down. So it's a bit like referring to the oil. You could see the world upside down because it's a reflection. Yeah. But in fact, it's like you're looking down at the inside of the ceiling as opposed to looking up at the ceiling, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, we I started thinking about it, and to, to sort of test the idea, I brought in an engineer, and we dug a hole. And we got down to four feet and it started filling with water, a bit like being on the beach, you know, like plot, and it's falling in. He said, what we've got here, Richard, the engineer, uh, Robert Myers from Price and Myers Structure Engineers, he's retired now, lovely man. And he said, uh, we've got a problem here, we've got liquid sand. And I said, what's that, Robert? And he said, it's when you dig a hole, you've got basically London's groundwater down there and it's pulling the material from out, around the sides of the hole into it, which means you're probably bringing these columns in. You can either throw a lot of money at it and cough a damn the whole thing, or you can put a pump on it, or you can forget your idea and change your idea. And I thought, I've got to change the idea. I've got 19 days to change my idea. And I thought, the water is the problem, but that's got to be what the piece is about now. I've I've got to use the problem to get around the problem. It's got to inform me. I'd already understood what the history of the building was, and it was, I don't know if it was called Lloyd's, but it was a a building that at, at one point in its history had built billiard tables there, you know, and it was famous for it. And I came up with this idea, because I was looking out the window, thinking, I'm, I'm in trouble here, I've got 19 days, I've got to do something. And I saw these big gas holders, and of course, you know, it's a bit like... Piece I described yeah. in Liverpool. You know, one minute the structure's there, and the next minute it's all below ground. And I thought these things are, you know, they're going up and down, they're in and out. What can't I just put something that that sort of frames the water in some way? I thought I know what I'll do. I'll get a billiard table. This is what the, this, they built them in this room. I'll get a billiard table and I'll set it into the floor. But it, but what it will do is it will acquire a seventh pocket in the form. Of a Hepworth twenty-eight inch sewer pipe, yeah. concrete sewer pipe. So I dug down and we set. We, well, first of all, we set the the table. We dug a pit with the you know. So the table went down with the legs and everything. T- cemented it round, left it a bit rough at the edges. So you had the six pockets, and you had the lovely cushion all round. And then I cut the table very carefully and neatly, so that part of the cushion went and part of the table went. And we inserted two sections of pipe. That went down four meters and contained the water yeah. down there, so it wouldn't allow any of the fall yeah. in. Then I um, submerged into that water, a paddle a waterproof paddle system, and so when you went into the room, what you saw was the room, and then you noticed something on the floor, flush with the floor, and you went over to it, and you kind of took that cushion shot pose, where you yeah. sort of <laughs> over the cushion, looking down into that. Murky subconscious world of the twenty-eight foot Hepworth pipe with this dark water down there, and every now and again there'd be a splash, yeah. like there's a frog, a fish, something horrible, yeah, yeah. something scary. Would I, if I fell down, Does I'd get myself himself wedged. Himself? <laughs> yeah, so it, it had all of those connotations from the real logic of the game and the yeah. the per, the perfectness of the and level the yeah. and the precision to this other subconscious thing of like. You know, London's groundwater, yeah. what's below there. And so that pipe's still in there, by the way. When they, when that all yes. came out, we didn't pull the pipes out, <laughs> just, just cemented it in, in, so it's down there still. Of course, of course, well,
2: <laughs> what do you do to relax, Richard?
3: What do I do to relax? I do two things quite regularly. Um, I play drums, as you can see.
2: Yeah, I did notice I'm I, playing. <laughs>
3: um, I unwind. It keeps me fit. I, I play a lot with a lot of other people. I don't play conventionally. I do a lot of improvisation. So like the steam whistles I blow uh, of my friends, these are all voices. They each have a voice, yes. and I just put piles of drums together and I play those. The other thing I do is I've got a very dear friend called Jot McFarlane, and a painter. And for about 25, 30 years now, we've been doing off-road motorcycling. So I've got off-road motorbikes in France where I've got yes. a place and I've got an off-road bike downstairs, and I'm going this Saturday to Kent, I do the Pilgrim's Way, I go off north and places. So I ride. I mean, I'm getting a bit old now for it. I'm 67. But uh, I still get on the bike, and when you open that bike up, it's a dream. And you're in the wilderness. I mean, there is this thing about cleaning the planet. You know, I'm riding two-stroke stuff, and I did have four-stroke, all got stolen. But the two-stroke stuff I've still got. I've got a Fantic, I've got a Kawasaki 200, I've got a DT 175. Oh, so I've got three nice. off-road bikes which I can choose to, and I did have a TTR 250 but that's just gone. Um but I can get off into the wilderness and just ride and it's so beautiful. Yeah. It's so open and the you know being in the French forest and riding hundreds of miles, you know, you've got every terrain. You've got hills, you've got rivers, you've got flat sections, fast sections, you've got real slow you know, where you've got to pick yourself over yeah. stuff. I'm not brilliant at it, and I mean, I'm too old to be doing it, but that that I enjoy. And as I say, drums. Other than that, I d- I'm getting into cooking as well now. Oh, I'm nice. beginning to enjoy... But I get very fixed on things. Like, I've really just got into my jams because I've never done it before. But we've had a good crop this year in France, which i brought back. So I've just been trying to hunt down pectin in London, which is difficult, and the kilner... The Kilner jar right. rubbers—they're yeah, difficult yeah. to get hold of. You can get it all online, but when you want to be immediate about things, and I've got I'm, my daughters a very good cook, and she's got me caught up in making ice cream. So I'm making coffee oh, at the moment nice. with, you know, with the uh, cardamom seeds and rose water, yeah. a bit of cinnamon, a bit of nutmeg, um, and all the other little ingredients. My secret ingredients that go in to make <laughs> a nice Indian ice cream. <laughs> nice.
2: Can't get much better <laughs> than that. If there was a um, Five artists, past and present. What would your ideal group show be?
3: Of five artists? Yeah. Oh, and God, yourself. I myself, or me and four others. Um, I think I'd have to think of a contemporary uh, grouping to make sense of my work with them. I mean, I wouldn't say Michelangelo because I don't think it would fit. Yeah. Um, Although I do like the Rondonini uh, and the very, very, very last works where... He obviously changed his mind halfway through, and so he left part of the sculpture as the previous. So there'd be an arm, it's very surreal, there'd be an arm in amongst the Pieta or something like that. An arm that wasn't part of the the couple, the Christ and the Madonna. Um, I, I would say when I was at college, I was fascinated by the very early works of Barry Flanagan. What I liked about Barry is you never knew what he was going to do next. Nice. Whereas with some artists, you know exactly what they're going to do. You know, you know, they're not going to change. It's probably driven by finance. Why Why would they want to change? But with Barry, there was no market at that time. When he started doing the hairs, that's an example of somebody who got stuck with yes, money. Yeah. And that's what all he did. And he made a lot of money and he lived happily ever after. He didn't live very long after that, but he lived happily while he had life. Um so Barry Flanagan, some of those early works, and particularly the more crazy ones, like he made a film where he just got a load of stools and paper and then he had a bag of sand and he stabbed it. And the, sand, and the bag was swinging, he kept pushing it and he was filming it and then it collapsed the whole structure under it. Or another very beautiful piece he made called Hole in the Sea. So it exists as a film and a set of photographs where he wades into the water in off the dutch coastline and he's just got a plexiglass cylinder it's about yeah, a foot and yeah, a half and he pushes it in the sand and holds it there while the tide comes in and goes round it yeah. and then it begins to flood so he picks it up and then he does it again yeah. where it's a dry patch when you think about that country and it, it being below sea level and him doing that piece of land yeah. art as a kind of a metaphor for what the country is suffering at that time you know about having to damn its damn it so I would, i'd say um barry flanagan i'd probably take someone who became an influence very, very later on in my life although I, I never heard about him when i was doing what i was doing but uh gordon matter clark an american artist who, who trained as an architect but very interesting sculptor who cut buildings um we did them for very different he did them for def- very different reasons to me, but he was an interesting artist and very visual, very stunning pieces. Um God, that's that's three of us. I need another two, didn't I? Um someone contemporary, I don't know. Um probably White Reed or Mike Nelson. Rachel White Reed, Mike Nelson. Yeah. I'd use I'd use them. I know them both personally. Funny enough I've had occasion to teach both of them in my past. Uh, and that's that's all good good stuff, and that would sit comfortably with Barry and myself and um, uh, Gordon Matter Clark. I'm trying to think of someone who's outside of the sculptural area, uh, someone who's slightly quirky, um, someone who's a bit offbeat, someone who exists in the cracks. I suppose I have to say my friend Anne Bean. Uh, a very, very interesting performance artist, very, done a lot of collaboration with many, many different artists and people, and people who didn't think they were artists, where she's drawn them in and worked nice. with them, different genders, that sort of thing. You know, she's a, she's someone, she's unpredictable, and that's what I like about my life. Wow. I like unpredictability because that trains you to get, get smart, get tough and get clever. Um, you can get very complacent. And you take things for granted, and then things can catch you out and pull you apart. Yeah. You have to be on your toes all the time, and artists, artists particularly, have to be on their toes to be to sort of be relevant. Yeah, yeah. really.
2: You mentioned about oh, at the start there. You mentioned about Barry Flanagan and yeah. and the, the the materials that he was using. Um, I, I, I was I'm about talked about myself, and I'm not putting myself in his category by any means. but... When I was in prison and making art, I was just, I, I wasn't allowed materials, you know. Yeah. Obviously, there was yeah. a, lo- a shitload of materials I couldn't even yeah. go near, you know, yeah. let alone use. Um, so, I'd be using stuff around me, like scrap that was around yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. And the trouble I had, when i come out of jail, and then pretty much the next day I was at university.
3: Yeah. Yeah,
2: the, the the guys at Univer, the tutors—they were going well, You can use whatever you want. You can have, you can do building. Yeah. You can do sculpture. You can yeah. do printing. I just wanted to use fag butts and yeah. I, I, yeah. I didn't, My mind weren't yeah. in a place where I could yeah look at anything yeah. and use anything. My mind yeah. was just it, it was so narrow. Yeah, you know? yeah.
3: But also very inventive, very inventive. I mean, a friend of mine uh, is a musician. I haven't seen him for a long while. Max Eastley. Uh, And he told me a very interesting story about how he did a week's course in a prison about making sound. And he was stunned at what notes people could get out of a Rizzler paper or just the kind of sounds that were sent down corridors just by tapping. You know what I mean? Because people in that situation, in that confined situation, had to find a way to communicate, tapping pipes or whatever, (laughs) or blowing notes on a Rizzler to get that to happen, and he and it blew him away. He said, "You know, they were better than he was in terms of being inventive and imaginative, yeah. and, and finding, uh, seeking a way around the problem of, of communication." Yeah. Well, um, it's that is, is that thing, you know. If you, you know, what is invention? You could say, "Well, okay, if I put if I put a tin of evaporated milk down there and said know, yeah, that's yours.'" But I wouldn't give you an opener. How would you get the tin off? You know, yeah. How would you get the lid off. Yeah. It's that sort of thing. You'd have to start looking around, wouldn't you? I've got a pencil. I've got you know. a I've got a, I've got a bent screw here. If I could just get a hole in it, I could maybe use a lot of s- bent screw. <laughs> <there. Yes. laughs> <laughs> but it's that sort of thing, you know. It's like I, that's I think what I I like about art and sculpture is you know like you give yourself a a problem to solve. Give yourself something. It's it's almost like saying what interests me is what I can't do. Yeah. And if I get it and I can then do it, then I've gained i've learned i've gone forward and if I've excited myself first, then I know I'm possible to excite other people
2: well, in life most of our problems are solved yeah for us aren't yeah you, mate? if you wasn't an artist, what would you like to be
3: Poor, what would I like to be I don't know i mean i'd have to go I'd have to go way way back i there were two there were two little dreams. I always fancied the um, (laughs) MotoGP. Oh, of course. You know, the dream. But I was never... I was never... You know, there are those people, when they get on a machine, there's there's something that kicks in that takes them beyond safety. They go at a speed where I could never go. So that was out the window. Funny enough, the other thing, which I kind of am intrigued by, it, and I thought I could do very well and it's and it's about material and it's about sort of not playing with material it's about fixing and repairing I've always fancied the idea that perhaps I could have been a surgeon you know I'm not squeamish yeah. i I've always thought that it's a very i'm, I'm intrigued like how do you stitch together veins or how do you put a muscle back together? with cotton or is it with a laser light Where you and And I think I could have done it really well what I couldn't have done is the academia that goes with it I couldn't have done the Latin I couldn't have done all the naming and stuff but uh, to take you know the the human material and repair it as a surgeon fascinates me you know and I think it would be more the physical side of things it would be muscle and bone it wouldn't be nerve endings and brain and that sort of thing I'd specialise in the, what is it, the osteopathic end of it all, fixing bones, you know, putting putting brackets in to knit things together. So it's,
2: it's all associating with the work that you do anyway.
3: Yeah, well, you know, yeah, it yeah. Different. It's you're in there with a black deck and decker an and a or you know. What I mean, it's not much different. So, so those were the two crazy ends of the spectrum, which came in after I was an artist. Well, I just used to think about it, you know, like that question, what would you do if you weren't doing this? And I thought, yeah, I could do that. I reckon I could do that. If I, you know, found myself in that situation, I wouldn't be afraid to get a needle out and sew someone up if I was, you know, on a desert island and there'd been a plane crash. I'd run over and... But other than that, I don't know now. I mean, now it's really too late to think about it. Um, It's interesting watching my kids growing up. You know, they're in their 20s, late 20s, and, you know... They're they're in odd professions which I could never dream of doing. I wouldn't be. I would never want to have been in a band. My son is. I wouldn't want to be a trapeze artist. My daughter is. They're they're too. They're like art. Oh, they're too difficult. There's no money. Yeah. Unless you make it really big, you know. If he sells a song to Adele, he's made it. But that won't happen. Yeah. I don't, I don't think. I, I it will.
2: couldn't name a
3: famous trapeze artist. No, I'm no. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure there are a few. Um. But in a funny way, it's difficult to explain this, in a funny way, being a sculptor, I've done a lot of other things. You know, I mean, I've built the house I own, yeah. not from the bricks up. I know, you know, I know how to... I could put a structure together and live in it. Um, I've, I've mended vehicles, cars and bikes that I've yeah. owned because I can weld and I know a little bit about mechanics and stuff. So I've, I've you know, been a mechanic through, through yeah. sculpture. You know, turning the place over. Not that I designed the mechanical aspect of that sculpture, but I was certainly there with my Meccano set, talking to the engineers when I first got the idea with worm screws and everything else, looking at Leonardo da Vinci's rack and pinion concept yeah. and the engineer saying, you know, that would be such a trustworthy thing to use. It's a bit clunky, but that would be better than what we've designed.
2: Brilliant. So,
3: you know, things like that. Of te- my my career as a sculptor has taken me into the world of other professions. Just you know, just sort of coming up with up with an idea, and then having to go and buy material means you know you've got that quality to go you know to be a like quantity surveyor maybe yeah. even yeah. you know evaluating what is necessary for, to make that work. What's the best and what's the cheapest? What's going to last longest? Should I duck and dive on the price? Or should I look at what's going to last and be value for money? You know, so all that kind of thinking as well comes into play. So there's lots of skills that sculptors have, which aren't just about aesthetic form being put together, you know.
2: Especially yours, where it's quite industrial all the time. You mentioned about building your house just now. And when we was unbuilding the plane, pulling the plane apart, you was telling Lee and I about um, an artwork which has fascinated me, Mm. Set North for Japan. Yeah, yeah. When he was telling us about how that idea came about, Mm. that was, it was
3: really something else. Yeah, yeah. Shall I tell you that again? Yeah, yeah. Well, Set North for Japan was an invitation to go out to, first of all, to Tokyo, and then from there take the bullet train out to the Niigata Prefecture, which is on the west coast of Japan, and to meet there with my dear friend Fram Kitagawa, who runs the Art Front Gallery, And um, he wanted... He he was responsible for a big 10-year programme that was taking place in that region. It was... It it was... um, It was where... uh, the region was dying, and Fram Kitagawa put forward this idea that it could be saved through maybe artists going into in the industry, going into the creative industries as well, like schools, etc., going into the workplace, and also putting sculpture there for a tourist attraction industry. So I went out there, and I hadn't really done any outdoor work, and I went to this mountainous area, and was shown a site at the back of a, a junior school, which is a big flat area, with next to it a great big temple gateway verticals and horizontals and I had to think of something to go on this site that would attract people and the one thing that the one criteria that, that that they were insistent upon was that whatever you did it had to have a relationship to you and the region somehow there had to be a connection between what you do who you are and the region itself i didn't know what i was doing i just i got back on that aeroplane i thought this is something i'm going to have to write and say i can't do it anyway it's a long flight. It's twelve and a half hours going back to Heathrow. The dawn came up, and I could see the curvature of the earth. And it's an absolutely mind-blowing experience yeah. being, you know, five miles up in a jumbo in first class. I was sent back in first class, oh, which was very nice. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and the portholes in front of you in first class, because I was seat number two. So as you're in the cone, you know, the portholes come yeah. round, so you're facing forward and looking out rather than turning That's a sideways. That's you don't normally get, yeah. isn't it? And I was looking at the curvature of the earth, and bing, the light bulb idea went on. You know, I play with architecture. I thought I'm going to build my house in the Nigata Prefectory at uh, the junior high school area, right next to the verticals and horizontals of the temple gateway. But it's going to be at the angle it stands in, in Rotherhithe, SE16. What I do is I go and see the engineers, I make a model. Rather than build the whole house, I made a linear description of the house. Yeah. I made a an idea that could be could be made in I-beams. And it was full scale. And I took it and I said to the engineers, I want this house not to stand on its base, but I want it to stand on its base as it does in Rotherhithe. But in Japan, if you see what almost like pushing it through the... Yeah. What happens if you just pushed it straight through the earth? What it, so it would be virtually upside down and yeah, crooked. Yeah. Anyway, what they said is they needed to calculate five angles of collimation. And what they are is they're five points in the ground off the North Star from Rotherhithe and then transfer those around the world to the engineers around the world to do. So what happened is they built the house, got the sponsorship from the Maida Foundation. They built the steel structure. They made the structure in component parts. They then brought it to the site and built it. And they then got two cranes and they turned it upside down and set it on the four points of five. The fifth one is just so to make sure the other four are right. You know, you do it four times, but you do a fifth one just to make double dot the situation. And so the house is out there still today, but it's upside down on its part of its roof yeah. because that's the exact angle it stands. And it's talking about the distance between that point in Nigtar Prefectory and that point in Rotherhithe. They're identical. The house is the same. The house is the same. But, you know, the Japanese are very beautiful people and they have lovely stories, and I heard one the other week. A friend of mine, Rika... Uh, came out to my little place out in France, and she's one of the singers with the Frank Chicken Band. And she was talking about lovely stories about the Japanese and their invention and miniaturisation, and she told me a story about space, which uh, I found really fascinating. I can't, and I can't, every, t- every time I meet someone, I tell them. And the Japanese are into miniaturisation. They can miniaturise things really well. And there was this, she was telling me about this one phone company that wanted to get their phone smaller, and they thought they'd done it and they gave it to the director. All these engineers had been working on this little phone. And he took it and he was looking at it. And next to him, he had a glass vessel of water. And he said, yeah, it looks really good. It really is small in the hand. And he put it in the water and a couple of bubbles came out. And he said, but it's not small enough. (laughs) There's still space in there.
2: (laughs) If the air's come out, wow. (laughs)
3: That's the Japanese for you. Brilliant. That's how they do it. It's all empirical thinking. It's yeah. like they've got all the computers and everything else, but that man just put it in water and said there's air in there. Get rid of the air and yeah, make it smaller. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> how much does that bubble take? And
3: that is an idea, you see. That's what that's what gets me going. I think that's so beautiful. Someone else told me a story like that as well. Um, and it's an example about space. What is space? And it's about a guy who moves into a... Um, a trading estate rather like this and next door to him some people are moving in and they've got a skip and one evening he's gone outside and he said to the bloke who's filling the skip he said listen can I I've only got a little bit in here can I pay you to put some of my rubbish in your skip and the bloke said that's all right you know I'll have a word with the boss in the morning um he'll be in but that, that's okay yeah he let out had a look at what he had he said 'You've hardly got anything you can put it in it's okay he won't charge you so the next morning the guy gets in early and he's got his little pile of stuff and he's just putting it in. The car pulls up and it's the boss. And the boss says, what do you think you're doing? He said, listen, I've had a word with your friend and I've shown him what it is and I'm willing to pay. But he said, it's all right. It's so small you can put it in. And the, and the boss said, well, that's OK then if you've agreed it. Otherwise, I would have done you with the police for stealing. And he said, but hang on a minute. I'm not taking anything out your skip. I'm dumping mine. He said, exactly, you're stealing my space. I've paid for that space, and you're you're taking it away by putting your stuff in. I would have done you for stealing if you hadn't had the permission. The idea of stealing space is a lot, and I use it as a title for a show: "Stealing Space." It's great when things come along (laughs) like that.
2: When you talk about being a surgeon, you mentioned about the academia.
3: Yeah.
2: How did um, becoming an RA come about?
3: It's interesting. Royal Academician. Um, You can't um, nominate yourself, Mm. and you can't apply for it. What it is, is the Royal Academicians, numbering in their 70s, I think about 74, 75ers currently, um, they're they're a membership group of the Royal Academy that goes way, way back, and they meet probably about three times a year for what's called the General Assembly. And in that General Assembly, there'll be a vote taken based on nominations given by the membership of artists they think are relevant to today, let's say, uh, and have done, uh, uh, let's say, distinguished in their field, whatever that happens to be, painting, sculpture, printmaking, you know, film, whatever. Um, And in, God, when was it, 2006, I had a phone call from Bill Woodrow, who was a member, who phoned me up out the blue one afternoon and said, "Congratulations, Richard, <laughs> you're a Royal Academician." And I said, "What's that? What have I got to do?" And he said, "Well, come on in. You know, we'll introduce you to everybody." So myself and Chris Wilkinson oh, yeah. on that particular General Assembly had been put forward as nominations. A whole group of people had put forward as nomination. It goes to a shortlist, and then there's a vote in the room. So, you know, you've been voted in by your fellow. No, no, no. You get a phone call after and say, you know, well done, you're a role academician. Do you want to be one or not? Some people say, no, I want nothing to do with it. You've heard that. Other people say, yeah, that's fantastic. And I said, yes, that's fantastic. And people have asked me, why did you want to be? And I suppose what it is, is I'm sort of probably seen to be at more the esoteric end of the art world in that. You know, you've got painting and you've got sculpture and you've got printmaking, you've got architecture. What I do is, you know, I've dabbled in sound making as art and I've dabbled in performance as art and I make very big installations, site-specific installations as art. So they're all slightly quirky, zany, you know, or seen as... You know, installation. What's that? What site specificity? What's yeah, that? Yeah. You know, it's not sculpture made in a studio. It's it used. To, it was something that was relevant to its location when it, when you look at it. That sort of thing. So, I thought to be a Royal Academician gave me a little bit of kudos, as opposed to being the wacky zany person. Yeah. You know, the You know, he's the weirdo. who's at that end of the spectrum of sculpture. I wanted to be sort of at the forefront, and I wanted to be recognised as you know as being as relevant as those guys and girls there who are sculptors yeah. you know rather than being the weirdo one <laughs> so yeah being a royal Academician did that also it's a pretty good door opener especially abroad because yeah. i always i mean it's the only time i've ever done it i never did it with my mfa or ba or whatever but i always put richard wilson ra and i kind of quite like that, that. I, I don't do it all the time but oh, I but i but i use it I've i, been I on use picture all done yeah no i've <laughs> used it when i've been when i've gone to meet Counselors, or or um, sponsors, or engineers, or whatever. I put RA it gives you a little bit of clout. Yeah. They're not just talking to anybody; they're talking yeah. to Richard Wilson RA, and it's useful. Let's just say that it's yeah. useful. If you've got it, flaunt it. I think it's important. I think it's important. It's an honor to be asked onto these things, yeah. and it's important to you know do your best with them and make that commitment. But it's also great that you've got. You know, it's another lever to help yeah. you, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Because you know, I
2: didn't know how a professorship works, and that's pretty yeah. much a similar sort of
3: yeah. Similar, yeah. Similar ways, isn't never it? Never really bothered with I mean, I've been a professor, and I've been honorary professor, but, uh, you know, I've never really written that down. I might have used it perhaps once or twice in a CV, depending on who I'm writing to. Yeah. But the Royal Academician one, I certainly do, and it's... I think it's because it is in the popular psyche. People do know about it, you know, the public psyche, I should say. It, people do know about the Royal Academy and the Academicians. Mm. They see them as old fogies, but then again, they're not. You know, with, there's a lot of new blood in there now, and it's really sort of in the, it's in the present tense. You know, it's in the present day, and it's done. It's, it's sort of up and coming, but still up and coming. Uh, after so many hundred years, you know, we've two hundred odd, two hundred odd years we've been going, um, and. It's just you're in you're in with a really good group of friends in a sense, Yeah. you know. You're, not everyone you'd hang out with, of course, you know. Well,
2: I didn't. I'd, I obviously don't keep abreast of who he is. I mean, I only yeah. saw that you were yeah. when it got. meant, I was reading something one time. And yeah, it said Richard Wilson. Right, and I was like, yeah. when did he become? Yeah, I saw yeah, him yeah. A few years ago, yeah. <laughs> but um, like to Gary Hume and, yeah. and Gary uh, Tracy. Yeah, um, Tracy's
3: Tracy's one. Yeah, yeah. And when yeah. I
2: saw it, there was a, a photograph. A couple of years ago, a group of all of you yeah, there, yeah. and I was going. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know, yeah, that. I didn't yeah, know yeah. that. Yeah, it's good, it's good to see people there. And yeah, it's it's keeping an old establishment relevant. Yeah, But dumb. it's funny,
3: you know. People do turn it down. Damien Hurst turned it down. Uh, Sarah Lucas turned it down. So now, when you get nominated, they do you. What has to happen now is you have to send out a little sort of feeler. You know, like if if the, you know. Should I ask if Gary wants to be an RA? Gary, do you want to be an RA? If you say oh, yeah, I'd love to be one, then I can go back right like, yeah. in that sort of thing. Yeah. You have to kind of do a little bit of sounding out.
2: Well, I'm still in contact with Gary. Yeah. And Tracy. Yeah. So if I have a little word with all three of you, yeah, you <laughs> 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 I've just got to produce some work that's slightly relevant to the world. <laughs> um, what have you got coming up, Richard? Anything?
3: Yeah, well like I said earlier, I've got the show in Istanbul. Yeah. That's coming up. Um that's a one person show opening in February runs to the end of March, early April. Uh it's a commercial show, so preparing all of that, that's drawings, that's prints, um and sculptures, object sculptures, not the big stuff. We are doing 2050 however in the in the space. They've got a sponsor so they'll be putting that work in. Um I'm also working on the Steam Whistle Museum for the Slice of Reality, which will take the slice away from its location and put it on land, and my friend's collection hopefully will go in and we'll make it a live whistle museum. Very, very odd thing to do, but I think it'll get a little bit of attention. And maybe even try and do it um, holding the hand of the Maritime Museum. Maybe they'd be involved as well. And we'll put a little board of trustees together, made of musicians and... um, possibly engineers, you know, uh, uh, and see where that goes. That's a long-term project with Zatorski and Zatorski. Um, then there's a lot of little bits and pieces. I'm working with Plinth on some sketches uh, that will be done as an edition, a print edition. Um, that's that's probably the... There's a lot of other little bits and pieces, you know, some performance stuff, some sound stuff with drums. Mm. Um but what I want, what I really want to do is, I want to put a book together. I haven't done a book since about two thousand and one or two thousand and four, yeah. and I think the last one was the Richard Wilson tape book, and it's way behind on some of the really good pieces. You know, it's not got turning the place over. It's not got slipstream down at Heathrow yeah. Airport. It's not got um, the piece on uh, Holborn on the uh, London School of Economics building. Yeah. Some of the big, big pieces that I'm known for aren't in books that that are about me. You know, they're in books about public art or they're in books written about, sp- specifically about site-specific works. Yeah. So I'd like to get a big book together, I'd, you know, like a Fiden thing or a Thames and yeah, yeah. Hudson thing. Uh, I don't know whether I'm sort of feeling a little bit um, insecure with you know recognition, but those pieces need to be seen in print. Oh, definitely. You know what I mean? Because people sort of, sort of, I hear people saying, you know, that's a great piece of work. Who did it? And they don't know it's yeah. me. You know, so but I need I to saw, sort of, I need to put the face to the work.
2: You mentioned slipstream there. When I, I first saw it on TV, yeah. I don't know if I saw the finished piece or the idea. I don't know yeah, who's on yeah, TV talking yeah. about the idea. But when I saw it, I was like that is just fucking typical Richard Wilson to, yeah. to look at the yeah, yeah. space as something takes up in space. You yeah know? yeah. So I thought it was fucking yeah, amazing. Yeah. And when I actually went there, it's quite breathtaking yeah. when you see it because I, I didn't know I was coming up to it. I, I, yeah, I you come out, out that lift
3: it. and it's, <laughs> it's there. And I was
2: like, fuck, there it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. amazing.
3: Yeah. Well, that was sort of... um That was an interesting commission that I got um, where... Uh, that was through um, Future City actually and I've worked with them once or twice before and they um, were working with the architects, Grimshaws uh, on that specific area of the airport and the original idea was to have planting they were going to put trees in there and then it was discovered that the light levels would not sustain the growth of the trees so something else had to go there and Mark Davy, the director of Future City said listen You're arriving at the cultural capital of the world when you get off those planes at Heathrow Airport. We need something in that airport that says, yes, you have arrived at the cultural capital. It starts right here when you get off the aeroplane. So let's have a sculpture. So um, a long list was put together, and from that long list, Heathrow and a few other people outside of the Heathrow committee brought it down to a group of five. Two Americans, two English, and one Japanese. And we were all interviewed and I got the gig. You know, they they chose me, which was great. And it was a three-year build. It was a year of bureaucracy with a lot of fighting to actually do what I wanted to do. That's not um, restrictions from Heathrow. They were brilliant. They were really on it. It was um, more sort of an issue with Department of Trade and, uh, you know, the security issue. Like, if a bomb goes off, this thing's going to fly everywhere. What are you going to do about it? So we had to get it bomb-tested. We had to build a section, take it up to a, an army base, and they' put markers all over it and stake out a field, they blow it, and then they go and count all the pieces and you really having, didn't think that was... It didn't even blow up. We built it so it wouldn't fly. <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> it wouldn't fly apart. which presented another problem, which basically was, okay, it's not shattered. We don't know what you've done, but it means if... A hypothetical bomb did go off in Heathrow Airport. The lateral loading on the sculpture would push the columns and they would buckle and bring the roof down. What are you going to do about that? Unfortunately, a lot of the budget went on building laterally loaded bearings. So that sculpture can move if it wants to. If it gets a sudden thrust from anything, i.e. the hypothetical bomb in a transit, the whole thing just swings. And you won't see it on the structure, but it's all hidden inside. And that's what the engineers are great at doing. It wasn't part of the brief, it wasn't part of the project. But those, oh, there's that's something a, inside that takes... That takes the lateral what loading. What something there that does
2: that? There's something that does There's, that, a, there's
3: there? bridges. When you get lateral loading on wind, you know, like they did with the Millennium Bridge, they had to really think about that. And they've got it cushioned now, so it's actually all capable and able to take the movement if it's hit by gusts on the river. But I tell you where it's a classic situation like that, not so much dealing with terrorist acts, but if you go to Los Angeles, a lot of those skyscrapers are built on roller That's bearings. What That's what I'm So thinking. when you get a tremor in the earth, the, the building is is sort of standing still.
2: There was a building in Japan, and when they got to the top, I'm getting it now, they've put a great big weight at the top of a building, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. And when the building moves, the the weight counteracts the movement, so it actually slows the building down. Yeah, I knew what was beautiful
3: concept. Beautiful concept. I mean, yeah, there's some lovely ideas that I've got. I mean, I just need to find um, venues to do them. I mean, like one here is the precursor to Slipstream, and it's actually a tumbling car. It's actually a tumbling car. Car. The original idea was a car. See the car? Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So if
3: you put that in the computer as a virtual model and then you throw it in space, so it's like a, not a car crash because it's not got the history of a car crash, but the car is actually, you know, moving in space. And it's fighting. So these would be these the wheels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would be a form built in aluminium that would just be in, along a boulevard. Or wherever. So there's, there's, you know, there's concepts like that that are still in existence. There's big, big sculptures where I can take objects and put them in the virtual world of the computer with a certain program, and I can actually allow them to tumble, fall, spin. What I do is I go in there and I take a hamster ball they with must, a car glued in it, in it and I roll. Sort of yeah, yeah. Well, it takes it out slightly outside of their yeah, everyday exactly. stuff. And so they can. That's what we were doing with the aeroplane. We were putting the aeroplane, a generic model of the aeroplane, and we were then tumbling, tumbling it. it and saying, "I was saying that looks a bit clunky." Because what it is, it's many moments put together, which is like Brancusi talking about movement in sculpture. You know, if you or film is many moments put together. The old stock and Android film. What you go is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You know, fifty stages of getting something to move. 50, you know, single-frame shots of a dancer leaping in the air, and then you put them together, and you just keep filling in the gaps, and then you end up with the form. And that's what the programme, in a clunky way of describing it, is doing. Yeah. It's basically giving you that, 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 and then you fill it all in. And it gives you a movement. On the computer, that tumble takes about 15 seconds to watch. It just goes... And up and away. Very optimistic up and away at the end. Yeah. No, it wasn't without, you know, I mean, we had to take take on board all sorts of things. Uh, longevity, cleaning, maintenance, um, making sure people can't climb on it or access it or touch it. Uh, then there's wayfinding. You can't put something in the way of entrance, exit, yeah, yeah, this yeah. way, fire, exit. You've got to look at all of that as well. So you've got to weave the thing See, in there to work. That's something
2: you wouldn't even yeah. consider. I mean, you obviously yeah. would because you've, you've done it several times. Yeah, yeah. But... You know, when when you first get brought up with that... Yes. You're like, oh, fucking hell. Yeah. You, you yeah. Know, <laughs> it feels like everything's <laughs> getting in your way, doesn't it? Everything's getting in your <laughs> way. Um, I was going to say, one of the, the, the final things I've got on here is where can people find you? Website, social media, but... Yeah. You know, that's
3: what, Well, social media I'm very that. bad on. I mean, I'm just getting into WhatsApp only because of uh, my brothers and sisters, you know, siblings. Uh, you know, my mum's getting very old now. In her nineties, so we just I do WhatsApp that way, but some people have discovered it so I'm getting messages from people on WhatsApp. (laughs) But they but anybody who wants to see can go to my website. You can either just go Richard Wilson Sculptor and put that in to Google and I'll come up. Um, if you put Richard Wilson, you're always gonna get the comedian first. Then I'm second. But my website is there, it's W W W R A Richard Wilson
2: either, are you?
3: I'm not even R.A., no. no, no I,
2: there was another R.A. Oh, no, no, no there was Wilson, an R.A., yeah. There was, yeah, done, Finest yeah.
3: Painter of Bricks and Mortar. In fact, well, I've got one of his catalogues. I went into a bookshop years ago, and I saw a book up on the shelf saying Richard Wilson. And I knew it was the artist. He was a painter. Yeah. Uh, and he liked his fruit juice. Yeah. <laughs> I think he died now, alcoholic actually, unfortunately.
2: But when when I, I, I put it in last night, actually, <laughs> and, and he, I put your name with R.A. at the end, and yep. he came up, and I thought... I saw the date of birth. I thought well, he's, he's doing well. <laughs> he's, he's looking all right for his age. He's <laughs> got longevity, that lad. <laughs> yeah. well,
3: well,
2: Richard, that's all my questions
3: asked. No, it's been fantastic, Gary. It's good to uh, catch up again. You know, it's oh, been it's a while, great, isn't yeah. it, man? You know. I loved it. <laughs> mate. I'll show you downstairs, and please do. You know, I'll show
2: you. Oh, there you have it, Richard Wilson. I told you that was going to be something special, didn't I? And the benefit of recording a podcast during a studio visit rather than over Zoom is that you get a little sneak peek into the projects the artist is working on. And that is said without trying to sound too smug. It was quite hard not to come across a little bit fanboy in this episode. I mean, anyone that has actually visited Richard's sump oil installation 2050 cannot deny that he's probably One of their favourite art experiences. Because it seems to have everything. It's theatrical. You've got that deep smell of the sunpoil. And if you haven't seen it. Make sure you do if you get the opportunity. It really is one not to be missed. Getting to a little bit of my self promotion. I'm selling a limited edition of 30. Barbed wire stars in various colours. Which go under the title of dark stars. They're handmade. Hand painted. And in an edition of just 30. You can see them on the Instagram page. At Mizog Art, M-I-Z-O-G-A-R-T. Or Ministry of Arts. Org. You can pre-order now. At £85. Plus £10 UK post and packaging. From November the 1st. They will be £99. With £10 UK post and packaging. Plenty of artists have got these. From an edition i had done last year. Um. Gavin Turk has got one, Marcus Harvey's got one, Ben Ein, Emily Malice, Carrie Reichart. So that's £85 pre-order up until November the 1st, then they go up to £99, plus £10 UK postage. At the start of this episode, I also mentioned a new art podcast that is airing on the 20th of October. It's hosted by art historian Joe McLaughlin and is entitled Joe's Art History. And if I can just read you just a little passage on Joe herself, you'll realize why I'm looking forward to this podcast so much. Joe believes stimulating art historical content should be available to everyone, and feels that presenting and writing in a fun and relaxed way will help break down the traditional elitism around the subject, which so many often find off putting. Joe is incredibly passionate about this topic and is determined to change the long-standing idea that in order to study or enjoy the arts, you need a top education and be cut from a certain cloth. Art is for all. Hear, here, Joe McLaughlin. That's Joe's Art History Podcast coming out on the 20th of October. Well, that's about it for this week. So like I say every week... On whichever platform you're listening to this podcast, you should be able to leave a comment. If you could do that, that really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast. So, thanks for listening, and until next week, ta
1: E-D-E-R-M dot com.